and welcome back to another episode of Series 4 on Motherhood. Um, this episode needs to start out with a little bit of a, I suppose, an apology to our families. Today we are talking about getting pregnant and what happens and I'm sorry you, you helped us through our degrees and then we ended up on the internet talking about this because as I discovered whilst researching for this episode, I'm still a child at heart and some of these things are funny. It's one of those episodes where we become very aware that, like, both of our grandmothers are listening. Um, We're going to be talking about some adult things, and I hope that we can just all be mature. I'm not going to promise that. No, no, nor am I, but Uh, at least we can start out with it. (laughs) We can try. But also, if you're listening, Nanny, I'm sorry. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Um, It is the motherhood season, so we're going to be talking about how you get there. Both talking about the process that our queens went through to get pregnant, because that's a major theme in the lives of, you know, our first three queens, but then also what it was like to actually be pregnant in the early modern world and some of the risks that they faced. Uh, We are going to be talking about miscarriage. So if that is a sensitive topic for you, a little bit down the ways, you might want to skip ahead. And then just, you know, all the different things that they were told to do to help improve the health of the baby, all the fun things that they were told to avoid, lest they affect the pregnancy. It's it's going to be a fun one. Uh, we, We did a lot of really fun research for this. As a starting off point, I think this could be something we're going to come back to again and again. What we will be talking about will, at certain points, just seem, quite frankly, bizarre, strange, and just probably big red flags that if your doctor suggested it to you now, maybe they shouldn't be a doctor but um, it fits in with the early modern world and their understanding of the body and about their place in the world again what we have to do is understand their world in the context that they understood their world and just be okay with it really because it doesn't make sense to try a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense to try and rationalize it or try and be like why would they do that well because that's the information they had available to them at the time so exactly one of my pet peeves that sometimes like especially popular historians do is when we talk about early modern medicine as if these people were stupid like you said it's just they're making the best of what information is available to them so throughout this even if we're talking about things that are completely absurd i just want to be really careful to stress that we don't think that they were like dumb we're not going to be talking about them in like a patronizing way and this stuff made sense to them in that time in their world my thing is don't think you're better than people in the past just because you've got the internet I think, though, that a lot of the things we're going to be talking about, even in their most like rudimentary forms, are going to be things that are similar to us, um, especially women who have gone through pregnancy before. A lot of this will probably sound really familiar to you. 
but I guess it's just we've talked about this a lot on the show before um, you know like in our queenship episode the idea of female fertility and female reproductive systems was a big thing in the 16th century um, it was and especially for our queens it was something that was constantly being thought about it was something that people were constantly reacting to whatever stresses that 21st century women have about pregnancy and about having a safe and healthy pregnancy now imagine that your whole existence is defined by that pregnancy yeah and i, th- I think that's a really good start point for this episode and in terms of them then conceiving children and things like that it had to have a purpose it wasn't seen as just a saturday um <laughs> i'm sorry um it had it had to have a purpose and the, the the ultimate goal was to conceive a child yes i think it makes sense then when you look at it like that that there were instruction manuals and the the quote-unquote right way to do it and we see it permeating their whole culture i mean like if we look mm-hmm. at um beauty standards men liked their women to be a little bit curvier um a little meat on their bones and that was primarily because in their minds that meant that these women were um, more fertile. Their bodies were better for childbearing. You know, they weren't like small and delicate and fragile. They were, you know, a little bit more robust. If you see, you know, nude paintings or something from the early modern period, there was always like a little bit of like a belly. Uh, the breasts are a little bit bigger or swollen. It's literally because they're thinking about women's reproductivity. When women are talked about, like when they're on the marriage market and they're being considered as a future spouse, a lot of talk comes up about her family history. You know, does she come from a, women, a line of women who are successful in bearing a lot of children, not just getting pregnant all the time, but having healthy children? When Henry was courting Anne Boleyn, he made a comment that she was, quote, likely enough to bear children because she comes from fertile stock. She comes from the Howards and God knows there are a million and three Howards. So he's he's all set. But it's like it's just it's something that is just so attached to 16th century women. It was all taken very, very seriously. And there were lots of rituals attached to ensuring the best possible outcome when you then put it into the context of royalty that's even more important henry the eighth and catherine of aragon when they first get married and henry's um henry becomes king he's only the second king in the tudor dynasty that's already got a shaky ground to, in terms of its legitimacy they need to prove that they are fruitful in their production of heirs and not just one heir multiple heirs Yeah, that's something that we definitely have to remember and, um, you know, sort of keep in mind that we are talking primarily about queenly bodies, which is very different to um, even, you know, the other noble women. The queen's body is the property of the state. Everybody knew your monthly cycles. Um, Like we know a lot about Catherine of Aragon's irregular monthly cycles because people kept track of them. Uh, looking a little bit down the road, Elizabeth I got really angry at her advisors because they knew when, you know, she was having her periods. And then too, like the king and queen's apartments were separate. You know, we talked about this in our spaces season. So if the king wanted to come visit the queen, like let's say everybody knows it's that time of the month and he's got to go make a visit. He has to make a point of traveling to her apartments, like, you know, with his attendants in tow, they'll go in and they'll do what they need to do. And then the attendants will wait around for them to be finished. And then they'll all, you know, go to bed for the night. So it's like, it's a very public thing. And add that to the stresses, like you said, of providing an heir for this very young and precarious dynasty. 
all of the things that we're talking about in this episode, so not just conception, but having a healthy pregnancy, we cannot overstate like how much that was affected by all of that stress. And that too, I think if you add in the fact that everybody's got an opinion about it, if you're the queen and you're not having children straight away, everybody's got an opinion about why, what's going on. What are they specifically doing wrong? Because heaven knows it's never going to be the king's fault. It's never going to be Henry's fault. Women in general, more broadly, had the burden of producing as solely on them and their bodies. They were they were completely responsible for it. So if anything went wrong or, you know, wasn't seen as going quite right, it is their fault and their failure to produce. So on the sort of, you know, physical medical side of things, keep in mind that 500 years ago, the, the female body and the reproductive system did work slightly differently to what we know today. The prime childbearing age for women was from like the late teens to the mid to late 20s. You got about like a really good healthy 10 year window when it's the safest for a woman to go through the ordeal of childbirth. It's not to say that some women didn't get pregnant before or after um, Margaret Beaufort, for instance, uh, whereas Catherine Parr was pregnant when she was 36. Um, she and her fourth husband, Thomas Seymour, had a child together. Um, Elizabeth of York, too, was 37 when she died in childbirth. And at 37, Catherine of Aragon was beginning the menopause. That's interesting, because I think that language of it kind of being safe and the prime time to do it is still something that, you know, is used today. The other thing that you have to take into consideration, as we said, is your health. They knew that healthy women produced healthy children, um, just as we do today but also healthy women conceive easier. So there was a lot of talk about like, you know, getting a lot of exercise and eating the right foods to kind of make sure your blood's flowing. And this is where we start to giggle, but um, the man would produce more seed if he had like a really good dinner. I like how a lot of their ideas about understanding of um, conceiving a child or once a child has been conceived all centered around food, because I'm here for that part. There was also a lot of sort of tips and tricks. Like you said, there were like whole manuals that were written about how to conceive children. Opinions differed, like some people believed in methods that others didn't, you know, like just like today when there are different ideas about parenting that not everyone subscribes to. So it was in the 16th century, except these were things like, for those who don't know, the 16th century medical practice really revolved around the idea of the body having like humors. Um, you know, the, the body had hot and cold areas that and that's what affected your health is if you had like too many of such humors, if they were warm or cold. Similarly, the body was divided into a right and left side. Uh, the left side being associated more with women and the right side being more associated with men. So like if you were a nobleman who was trying or Henry VIII who was trying to conceive a boy, you might aim towards the right side um, because if you got, you know, if the seed landed on the right side of a woman's womb, it would be more likely to become a boy because it's growing on the right side of the body. There's all that stuff. But then on a more empowering note for women, a lot of people actually believed in the power of the female orgasm. Because it was believed by some that it was in order to conceive, um, there had to be a mix of male and female seed. Some men did believe that, um, that you know, their women had to, to orgasm in order for a conception to take place. So 
the sex probably wasn't as bad as we think it always was. I think there's a really fun example of it from a French doctor. These are his words, not mine. He advised that at the moment of conception, a man would feel extraordinary contentment in the company of his wife or a sort of sucking or drawing on the end of his yard. Yep. And then just in terms of women, <laughs> he said the woman should experience a sort of yawning or stretching in the womb or a shaking and quivering. There's so many things I want to say on this. <laughs> I'm going to refrain. That's going to be another theme of this episode. <laughs> if all the physical stuff isn't working for you, you know, if you're healthy and you're having good sex and it's still not happening, uh, another way that people used to conceive uh, was through divine intervention. So there are two kind of interesting ways that we see Henry VIII and the Queens kind of playing with this is the biggest one, I think, is um, pilgrimage. That's so much I love fun. pilgrimages. That's a whole rabbit hole. But one of the most important pilgrimages that Henry VIII ever undertook was to Walsingham, which was a site associated with fertility. Uh, this was at the point when he and Catherine of Aragon were struggling to conceive. Catherine of Aragon also went there too, but in this time she was already pregnant and she was praying for a safe delivery. So you can see how like a couple like Henry and Catherine, who were very affected by their pregnancy losses, would get some comfort out of going on a pilgrimage like that. These are two very religious and devout people. They're going to ask for those intercessions on pilgrimages from saints and to kind of get any help that they can or any answers that, that, that they can. The other big one that Henry VIII was a fan of was astrology. So oh, yeah. Henry VIII was a cancer um, and put a lot of weight onto watching the stars. And like, you know, he had a birth chart that kind of dictated his life to a certain extent. So he would have sat down and he would have consulted with, you know, a, a cosmologist who was able to tell him like, oh, you're not, maybe you're not conceiving because um, you're being ruled by this planet at the moment. Maybe Catherine isn't conceiving because you're not doing it at the right time. Um, so there were a lot of different ways that I think they played with the idea of conception without really realizing any physical impediments. And this is where I'm going to say that we almost fell down a rabbit hole this morning, sending articles back and forth about this kind of tantalizing idea that perhaps Henry or some of, um, of some of the queens maybe had some issues with fertility that went beyond just, um, you know, stress. There are so many rabbit holes you can fall down with this. And I don't necessarily think that we are alone. But yeah, there are there were loads of um, different suggested causes uh, for infertility. Yeah, it's fun um, to kind of use modern science to speculate what might have been wrong, like especially with Henry, because a lot of yeah. people do note that, what did you say before we got on the call? Henry VIII had a 30% success rate. From 11 pregnancies so three women. So it's seen as like, instead of blaming the women, um, can we apply medical science you know, to, to Henry to see what was wrong with him? Obviously we can't because he's been dead for 500 years and we'll never know, but it is kind of fun to think about. I, I, I enjoy this shift because like we said at the start, a lot of the burden of conception and pregnancy and things like that historically lay with the women but there's limited contemporary textbooks from um, the medieval and early modern period that look at male infertility 
But there was this really cool article that we we both looked at that posed the question, was actually Henry VIII in, infertile? And looking at the different reasons why that could have been, his infertility stemming from, um, in his later years, his, his obesity, his stress, um, his drinking, and also the physical injuries that he sustained in his youth. But then on the flip side of that, looking at his youth, the intense training and competition that he put his body through, horse riding for jousting and the the boxing and everything like that all of which kind of compiled to potential reasons to look at there's actually an interesting quote from um jane seymour's reign that does kind of hint that henry knew something might have been wrong it actually comes from Chapuis, so uh, as always, kind of take it with a grain of salt, but it's interesting that Chapuis notes that Henry kind of admitted to him that because of the um, the issues with obesity, because of the issues with, um, you know, he's in pain all the time because of the injury to his leg, he was actually worried that it was taking Jane so long to get pregnant um, because Jane didn't conceive until about a year after the wedding. Henry thought, maybe it's me. That's really interesting. I well, especially because um, that's for as much as like we talked about women being seen primarily like in terms of their fertility, you know, with like beauty standards, men were also playing up their fertility. I mean, that's the whole reason that like cod pieces are a thing. So even for a moment, confessing to Chapuis that it's like, yeah, you know, because of my leg, I have this excess of bad humors in me. Maybe that's you know causing all of this to happen. Is that's a, a big thing. As a man, it's one thing, but as a king, it's another thing to then say, I lack the ability to provide the country with stability and with an heir. That's a dangerous thing to be admitting. For his first two marriages, though, we know that Henry didn't really have an issue with siring children because both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn got pregnant really quickly. Catherine was pregnant very soon after she and Henry got married, and whenever we don't know exactly when henry and Anne boleyn began their sexual relationship but it was probably very soon after that elizabeth was conceived because there was a lot of maneuvering that happened once Anne became pregnant with elizabeth we know that at least with these two women they didn't necessarily together have a problem with getting pregnant it was fairly easy, I guess, for them to tell when they got pregnant. Um, there are a lot of little tricks that Tudor women use to determine when they were pregnant that a lot of women still use today, actually. Like, there are certain physical signs when a woman is pregnant that um, are kind of hard to ignore. Nausea and fatigue. You're, when your breasts swell or are tender. Uh, obviously, you know, when, you're, when your monthly courses stop. Cravings was a big one. Um, we know that Anne Boleyn made a big deal about her cravings. Like, um, it wasn't public knowledge yet that she was pregnant. So she would make all these delusions to like, man, I really, I re would really like some apples. I just re these apples sound so good right now. And everyone's like, oh, okay, so you're, you're hinting something here. Um, and Jane Seymour had a craving for cucumbers when she was pregnant with Edward. But the biggest sign for Tudor women in the absence of anything like a reliable pregnancy test was what they called the quickening, which is when you first felt your baby move. And a lot of women took this as a sign that the pregnancy was successful. Like even if they suspected before that they were pregnant, they wouldn't say anything until they actually felt the child move because that was an indication that, that they were well underway. Science is only going to get you so far at this point in time, right? You have to then look at your body and listen to what your body is telling you. 
that didn't necessarily stop, quote, science from trying to find effective ways to tell pregnancy, though. There are a lot um, like quack pregnancy tests that these women used occasionally. They did have some understanding, though, that urine could detect pregnancy, like our pregnancy tests today, right? You would get you would get a doctor in who would examine the color of your urine. The, the other one, though, that I thought was interesting was there were all sorts of like little like potions, like these mixes of um, these herbs and tonics and everything that apparently if a woman drank it and felt sick or threw up, it meant that she was pregnant. Um, so it's like, you know, it, for all of the sort of early science, there's all these kind of like, you know, traditional old wives tales. Being able to read your body is really your safest bet. In our notes for this half of the episode, for a long time, the title was You're Pregnant, Now What? Because that's literally what we're going to talk about is once you have, you know, taken that successful pregnancy test or you felt the quickening or, you know, however you've determined that you're pregnant, what does that look like? Because this was, as we keep saying, quite a dangerous process. So once you've discovered that you're pregnant, it's kind of all hands on deck. Like this is, you know, this is real and we have to keep an eye on you. Again. Don't worry there, everybody. There are tutor instruction manuals for how to navigate this tricky time period. Just like there are today, though. Like, how many, you know, Instagram accounts are devoted to, like, what to eat when you're pregnant? It's the same thing for tutor women. There would have been a lot of advice for expectant mothers that isn't too far from the mark. Like, physical exertion, for instance, is a really big one. They're like, you know, don't do anything that's too stressful or taxing physically. My favourite thing, though, is to, and this was an advice given to Anne Boleyn, to not go out in the fog and to not go out in the wind, specifically east-facing wind, because that was seen as particularly dangerous. Um, And this kind of falls into the category of misguided now, but you can sort of see where they were going with it. It was advised that women shouldn't drink water or milk during pregnancy. They should stick to ale and wine. So, I mean, today... Um, I'm not advising anybody to do that. But at the time, they were thinking in terms of all of the unsafe things that are in the water and in, you know, unpasteurized milk that could hurt that could hurt your baby. Don't do it. Stay stick to the, the sanitary, quote, drinks like, you know, the alcohol that is safe to drink. So you can kind of you can see the method to the madness. Yeah, completely. Beyond the physical advice, though, there was also the stuff that this is probably the most fun we'll make of these people because a lot of these things are pretty ridiculous and irredeemable. There was the belief that not only the woman's physical health benefited the child, but also her mental health. So um, you had to keep your mental health stable. You had to think good thoughts during your pregnancy because those would transfer directly to your child and they would influence the development of your child. So there was a lot of stress on like, you know, doing quiet work on not being overstimulated, um, lest the baby be, you know, muddled or confused about everything going on. But then also there were all these like do's and don'ts about what to even look at if you're pregnant. My favorites have always been, if you're pregnant, don't look at a full moon. 
because then your baby will be a lunatic. You know, lunatic. <laughs> the other good one, if you're oh, pregnant, she's... don't look at a rabbit because then your baby will have a hair lip. I love that. Yep. They are fun. But I, I have Hit two me. that I kind of enjoy. Regarding your thought process when you are um, pregnant and, and kind of trying to conceive about not having dark thoughts, you know, trying to have pure thoughts and things like that. Because if your thoughts are dark, that you are going to end up with a black child and uh, by 16th century standards, that's not something that you've seen as desirable. But again, their words, not mine. That's like, interesting because you which, always hear about these things affecting like physical deformity um, or character, you know, like if yeah. somebody is perceived as evil, then it must be because some something the mother did when she was pregnant. But it's interesting then to tack that on to um, society and this increasingly globalized world. That's a really hard thing to kind of get your head around and try not to bring any kind of 21st century uh, ways of thinking and moralizing elements into thinking about it because it's really difficult to not just like, no, 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 that's not okay. The other sort of interesting way that women had to adapt to pregnancy, not just in like health and lifestyle, but was also physically um, with clothing alterations. Obviously, if you your body was changing, your clothes would have to reflect that. And I think it's interesting in The Private Lives of the Tudors, which is a really good book by Tracy Borman, she speculates that in Jane Seymour's famous portrait by Holbein, it's just it's one of the, like the best portraits of the Tudor world. It is so detailed to the point that the details actually include these um, these pins on the bodice of her gown. And it's something that you can only really see if you're in person and you really kind of put your face up right next to it. Or if you get a really high res image online and you zoom in. There would have had to have been some significance in including it. Like Holbein would have had to go to the trouble of putting it in. It must have been for a reason. And Borman speculates that it was probably because Jane was pregnant and there were modifications being made to her gown. Like um, these pins were holding in place some, you know, physical modifications to her gown, which I just thought was really interesting because it just shows how like Jane is seen as successful now or on her way to success, at least because she is pregnant. We're going to commemorate that in this portrait, in fact, but at the same time, it's something that is a gross woman thing. So we're going to allude to it in very subtle ways that people who know where to look will be able to tell. I saw your art historian eyes light up. Uh, so we are going to be talking about miscarriage for the next few minutes uh once i edit this episode i'll put the codes in the description so if you want to skip ahead check the description of the episode to find the relevant time code but we are going to be having a discussion about the miscarriages that Catherine of aragon and anne boleyn suffered because beyond the dangers of physical childbirth which we'll talk about next episode the pregnancy itself is really dangerous and Catherine of aragon and anne boleyn both experienced a lot of loss associated with pregnancy that makes this whole process just that much harder just like it is today miscarriage is extremely common Catherine of Aragon of her seven pregnancies suffered from four either miscarriages or stillbirths early on in the pregnancy and Anne Boleyn it's guessed that of her three pregnancies two of them resulted in miscarriages 
I think the, the, the point we want to hit home in talking about it now is just how stressful it was for Queens because everyone could see what was happening to her body and the pressure of losing that child is just like we can't really ever know what that feels like. No, and there's, there's a human element here that I think we have to be aware of. And they're, like you said, they're aware of the, the weight of the duty that they have on them. And this is speculation completely, but they've, they've probably had that idea of what, you know, right, I imagine other mothers have even now an idea of what their child's going to be like in their mind and with these women, the kind of rulers that they're going to be. So trying to separate themselves from that, from that emotion of it, and then to say, okay, I'm, I'm fine now, We're let's try and conceive another heir it's really difficult to get your head around i mean catherine of aragon and um Anne Boleyn didn't quite know to what extent henry would go to to secure a healthy male heir you know in the moment certainly though Anne Boleyn worried for her position because after she miscarried in january 1536 the child was far enough along that it was determined to have been a boy and oddly enough, it was actually on the day that Catherine of Aragon was buried at Peterborough Cathedral. Um, the news got out that Anne had miscarried. This was her second miscarriage. The imperial ambassador, Chefui, wrote in his account that Anne had just miscarried of her savior. So there was this like pretty common knowledge that unless Anne could do this, that she was in trouble. I don't think she quite knew yet how much trouble, but that pressure and that stress cannot have been healthy. I think I I feel like potentially there may have been a greater pressure on Anne to produce a, a male heir, especially because there wasn't an option not to. And like I said, when we kind of started, it, it was it's it's a normal thing. It it happens. It's heartbreaking, but it it happens. That being said, like we also said, a lot of people have wondered like if there was anything wrong because I mean the two women together went they they lost six children. It could be on Henry VIII's side, like we said, but then keeping in mind that, you know, Catherine of Aragon, for example, it was noted that she wasn't physically well all the time because she insisted on going through all of the fast days. So she sometimes went days without eating, even while she was pregnant. It'd be great to be able to say we know definitively this is what has caused it, but all we have is that speculation. And I think it's, it's really helpful to be able to have a more nuanced conversation now with the, the way that people have been able to bring Henry VIII into the conversation and bring men into the conversation, or re-bring them into the conversation, I should say, as well as looking at women that I think it's always a topic worth looking at. There might not be new information, but there's new ways of interpreting it. We actually see the fears manifest even in the fathers. Um, like we think of pregnancy in this time period as a very womanly thing, and it was. But the, the fathers of a lot of these children were in, invested in their health as well. And a really good example of this is the letters exchanged between Thomas Seymour and Catherine Parr when Catherine Parr was expecting their child. Catherine, of course, being older, there was a lot of concern about her health. Um, a lot of the letters exchanged at this time period between her and her husband and her stepdaughters make reference to the fact that they're really concerned for Catherine's health. And there's this actually very sweet note that Thomas wrote in one of his letters where he told her, I do desire your highness to keep the little knave so lean and gaunt with your good diet and walking that he may be so small that he may creep out of a mouse hole. He's basically saying, I hope that you don't make the baby. They give him a little nickname, the little knave. 
I don't hope that you don't make him too big because that could be dangerous for you. That could make the process a lot, a lot worse. Like, I'm glad that you're, you know, eating well and walking and your pregnancy is healthy, but keep you in mind too and your body. It bring them into this uniquely female experience and express concern. It's interesting to see it in that contemporary context. Yet Thomas knows just how dangerous this is for his wife. They're excited. You know, they're giving their kid already a pet name. And uh, there's another letter where Catherine's telling him that the baby's moving a lot. So when you get home, you'll like to feel it moving. And yet there's still that concern of, you know, let's make sure that this is good for everybody and that you're you're taking care of yourself, too. It's a fear that would have been very, very present for him. And like you said, like other men as well. When a woman enters the final stage of her pregnancy, especially well, a noble woman, uh, a, a normal woman wouldn't have the luxury of being able to do this. But uh, one of the most like sort of notorious aspects of an early modern Tudor noble pregnancy is the confinement or the lying in period, which was when the woman, the pregnant woman retreated into her chambers and awaited the birth of her child. The sort of prescribed rules for this come from tradition, but they were written down during the Tudor era um, in a collection of ordinances that were written in 1494. If that sounds familiar, it's because we talked about them in the Margaret Beaufort episode. A lot of people speculate that they were actually written by Margaret to ensure that the royal household was running smoothly and everyone was doing what they needed to do. So according to these rules, a queen, when she was getting close to her due date, would take to her chambers. And this would be a period of about 40 days before the birth and for 40 days after the birth, just to ensure that she was safe and taken care of. Of course, this wasn't exact because they didn't have any precise way to determine like when a child was due based on, you know, the date of conception. They, they didn't really... No. I mean, they could count, but they, there was no precise way like there is now. And then on some occasions, the truth might have been stretched a little bit. Like um, Anne Boleyn probably wasn't honest about when Elizabeth was conceived because she was most likely conceived out of wedlock. So um, everyone would have been really surprised when Anne Boleyn went into labor Whoops. very early on in her confinement. I think it's quite cool that there's an opportunity for some women now to still have that time to rest and heal. And I really think that, you know, from a 16th century standpoint, that they're onto something there. But the way that they specifically did it was probably not actually great. The chambers that a, a queen nope. would spend her confinement in would be purposely chosen and they would be lavishly decorated. They would be these beautiful places because you're spending a lot of time there, right? But then basically she was sealed in. She did not leave these chambers until 40 days after her baby was born. The only people who were allowed to come in the chamber were women. In the ordinances, Margaret Beaufort makes clear that the room should be really shut in. Um, like only one window was allowed to be uncovered. They didn't think that natural light was healthy for the mother so, or, the, or the, the baby once the baby was born. So she would have one window from which to look out and like view the gardens or something. But other than that, it was dark and really hot too, because they went to such an extent that the spaces under doors, keyholes were stuffed to make sure that this place was just completely sealed in. So like Tracy Borman 
uses the illusion of it was kind of in itself like a womb. The, the goal was basically to make sure that the queen didn't overstimulate herself, right? To make sure that you are going to be healthy going into childbirth and you're strong, you're getting ready to do the thing. But then and afterwards, you, you can recover effectively. I'll be honest for you, it doesn't sound like for me. But the idea of the room being hot and trying to keep it as dry as you can, it makes sense in relation to 16th century medicine. Because based on, like you say, Nalia, the body's made up of lots of different humours and things like that. Women were seen as being colder and wetter in terms of their humours. So in order to promote health and stimulation and things like that, then they, they need that balance. Um, like we said, a, a woman's... Um, the things that she saw and her thoughts were seen to influence the baby. So like the art on the walls couldn't have any depictions of like violence or stressful scenes. So like um, Anne Boleyn in kind of an ironic twist of fate, um, the tapestries in her confinement chambers were of St. Ursula and the Virgins. <laughs> that was kind of prophetic. And Jane Seymour had um, like scenes from classical history, you know, to inspire grandeur in the boy that they hoped she was carrying so yeah like even down to the decorations it was like we we can't have anything interesting um you know we have to just sit here quietly and wait for you to go into labor it's really a weirdly female bonding experience i think like you were saying earlier there's not really many opportunities for women to kind of advocate for advocate of moments of power and kind of strong power and things like that this is one that they can do it in. This is a safe space. All of the topics that we've talked about on this episode are very much in the 16th century seen as like almost mystical um, because it's such a feminine world. And like once the woman enters her confinement and it is a shut for for the noble women, at least it is a shut off process and only women are allowed in. It gives this kind of mysterious quality to it so that the entire pregnancy journey from getting pregnant to staying pregnant to then getting yourself physically ready for childbirth. It's there like all of these things that we're talking about, like, you know, don't look at rabbits or the full moon or have, you know, bad thoughts or whatever. It's just, I don't know. There's so much unknown about it. And our, our Queens were so affected by this, like this process defined their lives that it just it's it's so baffling to me that like it's it's this process that was just so mystifying to all of them you know even if you look back as recent as you know sort of the 50s and 60s of men pacing up and down in you know waiting rooms with cigars it, there's always this idea that i have in my head it's from the tv show bewitched when um, samantha first has the baby and darren goes and see her and she pulls her out of this drawer like the baby just appears he's like oh my god um, which seems silly to say, but it, it's true. There's that, that mis mystical element to it still. This process is the defining process of the lives of women, the lives of queens, especially because there's so much pressure to deliver a male heir. This was, this was the end goal. I mean, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn got pregnant right away and then basically for the rest of their lives were, were pregnant all the time. And we giggle and we, we talk about how silly some of the things are, but the, we do have to stress the gravity of the situation just because this is such a major issue for them to the point where like their periods are being observed. So now that we've gone through the process of 
getting pregnant, being pregnant. Next episode, we're going to go into more detail about the dangers of childbirth and what that would have looked like for the queens because this is only kind of the first half of the process the second half is arguably the more important part of it i kind of consider in my head i kind of consider this a two-parter episode yeah I th- I th- it makes sense as a two-parter episode because there's so much you can get into and i mean there's so much we didn't even talk about on this episode and there's so much that we won't talk about in the next episode i know we we, we had to struggle quite a bit to to cut some stuff out and in the next one there is some eye-watering stuff to discuss come back next time Um, so yeah on that note come back (laughs) next time we'll we'll see you in a couple of weeks and we'll be talking about childbirth Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Kate and I will be discussing childbirth and all its risks. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave a rating and a review. Long live the queens!